cut into the ground in Washington, D.C., with a looming black granite is the Vietnam Memorial. It contains the names of 58,000 American soldiers who gave their lives in the war. The names are listed in chronological order from the date of their death to the completion of that conflict. I'm sure that many of you have visited that site. Some of you may know names that are written on that very wall. You may have a family member or a brother or a distant relative. This week with the turmoil in Afghanistan, I'm sure you saw the iconic images of a Chinook helicopter flying over top of the U.S. Embassy, and there was a historical connection to a similar image during the fall of Saigon. It brought back a lot of painful memories, a lot of questions, a lot of, have we not learned our lessons? Sometimes we see images and we're reminded that there are things that history should teach us, can teach us, and must teach us. Memorials are designed to do just that. They're designed not just to mark a moment in history, they're also designed to mark lessons that we try to not forget. Maybe you know the statement that goes like this, he who forgets the past is doomed to repeat it. In this way, memorials really matter, like they really matter, because they mark events in history for us to look back and say, let's be sure that we learn. Part of the reason why the Old Testament is in your Bible is so you can look back and see moments in biblical history and learn the lessons that God intended for his people to hear. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 puts it this way. Let's see. I click, there we are. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might, might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now here's the thing. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So Isaiah wrote that particular book and wrote this particular text for this very purpose. And that's part of the reason why I've wanted you to join us in reading through the book of Isaiah during this month, to be able to see what it is that God is saying through this glorious book, to be able to read day by day the particular passages and the texts that are in the book of Isaiah. So if you don't have a Bible reading plan, I'd love to have you join us and participate in this reading. If you already have one, then stay with it. Today's message is summarized in the words of Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch theologian, politician, and pastor. He said this, there is not one square inch on the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not say that's mine. There's not one inch 
over the whole created order over which the risen Christ does not say, that belongs to me. In Isaiah 13 through 20, we find five oracles, nations that surround the people of Israel. The nation of Babylon in chapter 13, Assyria in chapter 14, Philistia in chapter 14, Moab in verse, chapter 15, Damascus in 17, Cush in 18, and Egypt in 19. And while Isaiah is primarily interested in speaking to the people of Israel and the people of Judah, he mentions these other nations around Israel and he warns them. And there are four themes embedded in these eight chapters. The themes are sovereignty, pride, judgment, and deliverance. So sovereignty, a rebelliousness that expresses itself in pride, judgment, and deliverance. Let me show you each of these themes, how they emerge, and then I'll draw a few conclusions along the way. So number one, sovereignty. Number one, sovereignty. Sovereignty means that God is in charge. He's in charge of everything. It means that God not only orchestrates all the events of human history, but also that there is a plan that God is working out in a way that fits with his kingdom purposes. The Apostle Paul in Romans 11 and verse 36 put it this way, from him and through him and to him are all things. That's a great text. From him and through him and to him are all things. We, we see this immediately in chapter 13 in verses one through four. The oracle is from Isaiah, in verse two, we see a signal is raised. In verse three, we see that God is commanding. He says, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones. I have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The point is, is this, that God is using nations and kingdoms for his purposes. Now this is so basic, but we really need to understand this. In a moment, we're gonna see that God uses these nations and kingdoms for discipline. He uses Babylon and Assyria to discipline Israel, but in the process, he also issues statements of judgment upon these very nations. So look at verse four. The sound of tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. The idea is that the Lord of hosts, this would be a word that we would say like commander in chief is taking the nations and he's using them as the weapons of his indignation. It's interesting that he starts here with the nation of Babylon. The idea is that Babylon is the nation that he will use in order to bring about the destruction, the ultimate destruction of God's people. You see that in verse 19. Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. So God is both going to judge Babylon and he's going to use Babylon. 
And what you need to know is that Babylon as a nation represents something even more than just the nation itself. If you were to look at the book of Revelation, you would see in chapter 18 and verse one that John says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. But Babylon wasn't around at the time. Babylon wasn't even a nation. What, what happened is that Babylon becomes a representative of the forces of evil on earth. So these nations are nations. These nations did sinful things. These, these nations had sinful people in them. I presume also it had some people that weren't as sinful as the rest of their nation. And God both judges the nation and he uses the nations as a metaphor for all that is wrong in the world. So part of the reason why Babylon is used and why other nations are mentioned here is because, think of this, nations represent the most powerful creations of human beings. Nations wield power like nothing else. I remember traveling with Nate and we were in a uh, country that I can't disclose that is controlled not by democratic rule, but by dictatorial rule. And it was remarkable to me how if you become a dictator of a nation, you have incredible power and unbelievable access to wealth. I mean, if you wanna have wealth, first own a home, maybe then own a business. But if you can own a country, wow. Through their populations, the laws, their economies, their culture, their military might, nations exert massive influence on the world. And those who control a nation exercise an incredible amount of power. We might even be safe to say that nations are the highest earthly power. Now why is that important? Because Isaiah makes this point that God rules over the nations. They're like the pieces on a chessboard that God moves around. In fact, in Isaiah chapter seven, he says that he whistles and calls Assyria and Egypt to, his, to do his bidding. Some, Dale, give me a whistle. That's what God does, right there. Let's hear it again. Now we laugh because it's so, that's what Dale does, Dale does to his dog. Or, or, or to me, <laughs> never to Sarah. <laughs> That's what God does to nations. He says, Babylon, get over here. Egypt, follow my bidding. We find this in other spots. Look at chapter 13, verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. That's another nation. Or... Verse 19, again, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Look at chapter 14 and verse five. It says, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows. But probably the clearest of all verses is in chapter 14 and verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so it shall be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand 
that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who can annul it? His hand has stretched out, and who will turn it back? So why is this important? Two reasons. Number one, this text serves as a warning to the powerful in life that they are not going to get away with their evil. If you have power and you do evil, if you use authority or position or your particular levers that you have in life and you use those not to serve others but instead to do unkind and evil things and self-promotion and even though the environment around you doesn't immediately hold you accountable, this text says whether it's an individual or a corporate leader or a national leader or an entire nation, eventually judgment is going to come. God is not going to let that go. Now the second reason why that's important is if that's true and it is, It means that God's people can take a deep breath when evil is winning. When day in and day out, it seems as though evil is winning the day, God's people can stop reaching for the panic button. Ray Ortland says this about Isaiah's vision of God. This moderates our anger and frustration now. So, If you're here today and you feel like you have been unfairly treated, someone's done something to you or maybe something's happened at work or maybe an entire society, you feel like we have been unfairly treated, how do you not tip into anger and frustration that will eat you alive? It's hard to sing when you're bitter. It's hard to love other people when your posture is just, don't hurt me. Don't you dare touch that spot. How do you you move through that? Ortland says this, God has scheduled a day on the human calendar, a day of final intervention when he will repay all the dirty deals and broken promises and backstabbings of history with a justice clear enough to satisfy no one less than himself. Evil people, tyrannical leaders, and wicked nations will bow the knee to King Jesus. So church, listen to me. When you do what's right and only have it turn out badly, just know there's another day coming. When you feel like the whole world is falling apart, know that the world is in the palm of his hand and he is sovereign and one day God's going to make it all right. So you don't have to be bitter or resentful or angry or vengeful. You can simply say, you reign. You reign. Secondly, this text, these chapters highlight rebellion, particularly the prideful rebellion that we see. We, we, we see clear examples of the sins that marked these nations and the sins that brought the judgment of God, of God upon their entire nation. So we're not just talking about individuals here. We're talking about entire nations. The prevailing sinfulness of their society brought divine judgment. So instead of thinking of this text in a sort of micro-individual way, we have to pull out and see it in a broader sort of landscape perspective. Isaiah 13, 11 says this, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp 
of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So Isaiah, in these chapters, indicts the world for its rebellion against God, all of which we have individually embraced, and collectively, all of our sins together create a societal sin problem. The whole creation is fallen. The king of Babylon, look at chapter 14 and verse 12, is charged with acting like he's a god. How you are fallen from heaven, O star, son of dawn, O day star, son of dawn, you are cut down to the ground. There's a parallel, some commentators think, between this and the fall of Satan. If you look at chapter 16 and verse 6, you'll see the judgment of Moab. Chapter 16, verse 6 says, we have heard of the pride of Moab how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, his insolence, and his idle boasting. He is not right. Notice the words that Isaiah uses here to make the same point. He says he's prideful, he's proud, arrogant, insolent, and boasting. He describes the entire nation with these terms. It's not just, hear this, it's not just that individual Moabites are proud, it's that their entire nation is characterized with this pattern of sinful rebellion. Isaiah certainly is concerned about individual sin, but he's also concerned about the danger and the tragedy of when our sins collectively create a society and culture that's marked by the very sins that we either embrace or that are around us. Remember Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah is lamenting his own individual sin and the sin of his entire society. Unless you think, well, that's Old Testament. Well, in the book of Revelation, we see the same thing. The church at Ephesus is charged with the whole church abandoning, abandoning its first love. And the Corinthian church was confronted in 1 Corinthians 5 for being prideful and not dealing with a serious moral issue. And what we always have is we have these blanket statements about these nations, and I'm sure that there were individual people or groups of people, a remnant, who were trying to be faithful, but yet the sum total of the nation, the sum total of the church, is a collective sinfulness. There there were people that were concerned about the moral issue. Some of them talked to the Apostle Paul about it from the church at Corinth. It wasn't that every single person in that church by virtue of what they did or didn't do, was proud, but it meant that the entire church as a whole was guilty because of their failure to act together. So what we can see here is this rebellion of these nations is both individual and corporate. They're not the same thing, but they are related. It's important for you to see our individual sins as serious, but also that they have a cumulative effect, maybe more than we realize. We don't just sin by ourselves. We often sin together. Ray Ortland says this, Isaiah's point is that pride is not some bizarre eccentricity of a few megalomaniacs. It's the spirit of the world. Now, some of you are a little nervous, like, wait a minute. Are you saying that I can repent for the sins of others? No. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that there is a sense that nations and people in those nations should mourn the sins of our society and our culture. 
We can say, I didn't do this sin, but we can say, this sin characterizes our nation, our people, our church. I may never have funded an abortion, committed an abortion, recommended an abortion, but I lament the presence of abortion in our society, and I wonder how long God will stay his hand over that sin that characterizes our society. The fact of the matter is, is that our rebellion is more than a me thing. Our rebellion is an us thing. So what do you do then? Well, like the nation of Israel, there was always a remnant. There was a people who mourned while they were still being faithful. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm in, I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm a man or a woman trying to be faithful to God, realizing that when God looks at the world, judgment is coming, not just because of individual infractions, but because collectively our individual sins are an affront to a holy God. So when we read Isaiah, we see this. We see sovereignty, we see rebellion, we also see judgment, third. These chapters contain warnings of what it's like to be on the wrong side of a holy God. In, in chapter 13 and verse six, if you go back, you will see wail for the day of the Lord is near. So this day of the Lord is a day of judgment, a day when God has reached the end of his rope and is coming. And the glorious news of the cross is that God pours out his wrath on individuals through the person and work of Jesus such that he is benevolent and kind to those who put their trust in Jesus. But dear friend, you don't wanna be on the wrong side of a holy God when you're not righteous. Chapter three and verse six says that the day of the Lord is destructive and guaranteed. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Chapter 13 and verse 10, there's a sense in which the entire created order is shaking and writhing. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. Verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. Go to chapter 14 in verse 22. 14 and 22 says, regarding the nation of Babylon, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, will cut off from Babylon the, the name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord. Look at chapter 15 and verse five. My heart cries for Moab, her fugitives flee to Zoar, for at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping. On the road to Horanium, they raise a cry of destruction. The people of Moab weep because of their suffering and they will suffer contempt. Chapter 16 and verse 13 tells us that. This is the word the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken saying in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude and those who remain will be few and feeble. Isaiah summarizes the judgment that is coming and it sounds like this. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts. 
before the Lord, before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them, and the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians, and everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. So this is incredibly heavy material, and the reason it's in the Bible is twofold. Again, first, to warn people and nations who think that they're too powerful to be thwarted. It's a warning that the God of heaven may be delayed in his judgment, but it will come. Make no mistake about it, judgment may be delayed, but divine judgment will not be denied. And the second reason relates to hope. Remember, these these words are written to people who are facing discipline themselves. These are written to people who are trying to be faithful in the midst of a faithless generation. They're, They're written so that they would know where to put their hope for vindication and deliverance. This is the kind of text that should cause you to both take sin seriously and at the same time to not become bitter and angry people. Again, Ortland says this, this is one, there is one thing that can save us from becoming a vengeful people. It is belief in divine vengeance. When a confidence in God's fierce opposition to all injustice enters our hearts, we have reason to forsake our savage impulses and love our enemies. Savage impulses. Are you seeing savage impulses around you? Do you feel savage impulses? I think to some people looking back at this last 18 months, you've never been more angry, never more frustrated, never more free to say what you feel like you want to say because you want to get your pound of flesh. And the reality is, is divine judgment is coming and as a result, believers are called to be faithful, to be patient, to be godly, knowing that God at the end of the day is going to settle all accounts. Finally, we find deliverance. These eight chapters are filled with hope. The reason these chapters are in Isaiah is to encourage God's people to be part of the faithful remnant. He's calling in them to trust in God's plan. While the nation is falling apart and dark clouds are coming over them to embrace obedience, he wants to remind them that he is not going to forget about his people, even though he places them under divine discipline. He's coming back for them. Look at chapter 14 in verse 1. He says, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel. He will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. This promise made to Israel is so similar to the promise that Jesus made to his disciples that I'm going away and I'm going to come back. In this world, you will have tribulation, he said, but don't fear, I have overcome the world. Isaiah 14.3 says, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with, with which you are made to serve, he's going to give you rest. Or Isaiah 17, he's going to turn the hearts of his people. He says, In that day, a man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. The idea is that God's people, instead of looking looking to the idols that they make to give themselves comfort and security and a false sense of control of their life. Instead, they're going to say, I see this idol, and I rather have trust in a God who reigns over all. So the question is, what are the little idols that we trust in? The things that we look at and say, if I could just have this, 
If I could, I could be in control of my life, or I could have this, I wouldn't be so upset, or I could have this, that I would simply know what the future holds. And what Isaiah's message is, in the midst of God's judgment to all the nations around for their sinfulness, in the midst of his discipline of God's own people, he says to them, look to me. You think Babylon is scary? You think Assyria has might? You think Syria is going to win the day? You think Philistia can win the battle? You think Moab is always going to harass you? You think Egypt and Cush are the biggest threat in your life? He invites them to pull their eyes off of the military and political situation in their world, as scary as it is, and to be reminded that there is a Lord of hosts who one day is coming, and by the mere statement that comes from his mouth, he will win the war. Last text, Isaiah 19, 21. God is even going to make his enemies become believers. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. This is chapter 19, verse 21. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them, and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them, and there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. The idea is that God can even go after those who historically have been his enemies and cause them to become followers of him. For those of you who have wayward children, Oh, that this would be a season that the hardship and the press and the sense of foreboding judgment would be a wake-up call and that they would begin to ask questions that they've never asked before. Maybe you're here today and you're not yet a Christian and this whole season and the press and the anger and the, the savage impulses that you even feel within you, you're asking yourself, where does that come from? It's kind of scary. I've never been more angry. Somebody at Aldi took my shopping cart. You lost a quarter. Wow. Sue him. That's a small example, but you know the spirit of the age. And it could very well be that God uses this overwhelming sense of both despair, frustration, angst. And what if thousands of people turn to Christ? because finally they realized the hopelessness of everything they were trusting in. A friend, if that's you, I hope that today would be that kind of day where you'd put your trust in Christ. But that also means that in that kind of day and age, it's a call for Christians to not give in to their savage impulses so that there's no distinction between a lost person in a card at Aldi and a Christian with their card at Aldi. Because if the world can't tell the difference between how we talk and how we act and how we treat one another, then we end up invalidating the very gospel whose greatest hour could be right in front of us because people are finally awakened, but it could be that we discredit the gospel because our idols have suddenly been surfaced. 
and this is what happened in Israel. It is the story of God's people over and over and over. There's a remnant of people trying to be faithful, trusting in God's sovereignty, embracing their own sinfulness, mourning the sinfulness of their society, doing what they can to hunker down, trusting God through his whatever judgment that comes, and then looking ultimately to their king who is their deliverer. This is a great time to be a Christian. It's a great time to celebrate the truths that define your life and should define how you deal with hardship. At College Park, we've summarized the gospel this way. God is holy. I am not. I am not. I am not. But Jesus saves, and Christ is my life. And if Christ is my life, then I can be free when the prevailing clouds of God's deserved judgment seem to roll in. I can celebrate that I was a sinner. I met Jesus, and my life has been changed forever. Lord, we thank you that there is hope for sinners today. And while we feel the savage impulses within us, help us to rest in your sovereign purposes. And for these now who are coming to profess their allegiance to you, we pray their faith would be strong through every season of life. And as we witness their public profession of faith, remind us why the gospel matters. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.